All right, good morning once again, church family. Um, if you uh, have your Bibles, if you would open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. This morning we're going to be in part of chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, and then we'll also be in chapter 8, 22 to 26. I've taken two stories, two separate stories, and combined them, and I'll explain that in just a minute. Uh, we've been going through Mark for several months now. Last week we were in the Gospel of Matthew because it was Christmas Eve, and uh, we're going to return to our uh, series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. The title of the sermon this morning is, He Has Done All Things Well. So let's read our text. I'll um, open us in a word of prayer, and we'll jump into the exposition and the application of the sermon. Mark chapter 7 Beginning in verse 31, here's what he writes. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And then down in chapter 8, in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a man, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. But they looked like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. If you will pray with me. Father, I pray this morning as we come to two stories, uh, one man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and another man who was blind. God, that you would cause us to see the power of Jesus this morning. That he does all things well. And that whatever infirmity, whatever weakness or sin, trial, whatever we bring to him this morning to, to recognize that the same power he had in these stories, he still has that same power this morning. He still is able to speak, to say one word, and to make this problem go away. Or to put it in context. Or to give us grace to, to be sustained through it, Lord. Help us to see that Jesus has not lost any power. He still reigns, sits on the throne, and he still does all things well. I pray that you help give us eyes to see this morning. Give us ears to hear, Lord, as, as we read these stories. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, 
My wife and I and my boys and I, we like to watch this TV show called The Amazing Race. I'm sure many of you have heard of this TV show. Maybe you have. It's been on TV for quite a while now. Uh, in the show, this series, this season, there's a, there's a father and a son uh, who are racing. Uh, and the father is deaf, which I, I just find fascinating that he would go on this show. Um, and his son knows sign language, and so he obviously communicates with his dad through that, and he has a signer. But I just think what, a, uh, what tremendous faith it took to, to go on this show and, in front of the whole world, essentially, and, and uh, as, as somebody who is deaf and to, to do these challenges. As we're watching the show, I realize um, how difficult it is to live a life when you're deaf. You know, as I'm watching the, the son interact with him and watching him do these challenges, you realize just how much you take for granted. The fact that I can see, the fact that I can hear, the fact that I can walk. You realize just so much in life we take for granted. Uh, you know, and this is, this is 2023. What would it be like to be deaf in the first century? What would it be like to be blind in the first century? That's what we get to this morning. There's these two stories of these, these two men who have these infirmities that have, have virtually changed their entire life and they're about to have their life changed once again when they meet Jesus. I've combined these two stories this morning because they have a lot of similarities and I hope to show you these similarities and more importantly, I hope to show you how Jesus has done all things well in these two stories. So let's look at the text. I'm going to start with the next position, and then I'll give us application uh, at the end. Let's start in verse 31 of chapter 7. The story of Jesus heals a deaf man. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, two weeks ago, uh, we saw that Jesus had traveled from Gennesaret, which is on the Sea of Galilee, and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is to the northwest. These are two Gentile cities in modern-day Lebanon. Now, Jesus was probably previously in Tyre when he met the Canaanite woman, and now he's going to travel 15 to 20 miles north to the city of Sidon, away from Israel. And then he's going to travel back southeast to the Sea of Galilee, and then to the Decapolis. The Decapolis is the ten cities on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, if you map this out, this is basically a horseshoe travel pattern. Like if this is Israel, Jesus goes like this. You got, and there's no explanation why. We're, we're not told why did he go to Sidon. We know why he went to Tyre. Or, well, I guess we don't know why. Uh, we know what he did there. But we are not told why he goes to Sidon. We're not told what he does there. We're not told why he wants to go back to the Decapolis. Remember, he'd already been there to uh, heal the demoniac man. So we're, we're really left confused as to what is Jesus doing? Why is he traveling through Gentile regions? What did he do in Sidon? What did he do in Decapolis? But we're going about to see that he's going to encounter somebody. Look at verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf, and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now, these, this crowd brings this deaf man to Jesus. Now, it's unclear how in the Decapolis, how in Gentile territory, did they know of Jesus' healing power? Remember, Jesus primarily stayed in Jewish territory. How did the Decapolis know of his healing power? 
we cannot rule out the possibility that the former demon-possessed man whom he had healed had spread the word. Remember, Jesus sent him home and said, go home, tell them what I have done for you. We can't rule out the possibility that he had told all these cities of what Jesus had done. And so they know. And so when Jesus returns to the Decapolis, perhaps they said, we've got to get our deaf friend to Jesus. And they bring him to Jesus. So this unidentified they brings a, a, a Jesus, a man who has two infirmities. Number one, he is deaf. And number two, he has a speech impediment. Now, the fact that he has a speech impediment leads us to believe that he might have been born deaf or maybe became deaf early in life. Now, keep in mind, this is well, well before the use of sign language. Now, surely they probably had a primitive form of sign language, but 2,000 years ago, this would have created an extremely difficult life where there is no sign language like we have today. So this man, his whole life is, 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 is completely controlled by his infirmity. And so they bring him to Jesus and they beg Jesus to lay his hands on him. This is now the seventh person or seventh group that has begged Jesus in the gospel of Mark. We see the faith once again of an individual or a crowd because they come to Jesus and they beg him to lay his hands on him. Now why? Because they believe that Jesus can heal him. That's why they brought him to him. They're not just thinking like, well, maybe he could do something. They believe this, that he can heal him. Look at verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Now, Jesus takes the man aside privately. Now, we're not told why. We're not told why. Why did Jesus want to be alone with this man? We're not told. Perhaps he wanted the man to know that he was not just another face in the crowd, but he was a person that Jesus saw. You see, Jesus, could, just like the, the woman who was healed when she touched him, Jesus could have just moved on, but Jesus wanted to encounter her personally. And perhaps Jesus took this man aside because he wanted this man to know, I see you. Jesus then does something, something most unusual. He takes his fingers. I don't know if those his index fingers, but, you know, takes two of his fingers and he puts them into the man's ears, sticks them in the man's ears. Now, why did he do this? We're not told. Perhaps because if Jesus said something to him, the man wouldn't have heard him. But he certainly can feel Jesus' fingers in his ears. Perhaps because Jesus came in the flesh and Jesus wanted to identify with his creation by touching his creation. Now, if you thought putting your fingers in someone else's ears is strange, look at what Jesus does next. Jesus spitted, spit, presumably into his, I assume, into his hand. And then he takes his own saliva and he touches the man's tongue. Mark's the only gospel writer who includes this story. I'm so glad that he did. I love these kind of details. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus spit into his hand and then touch this man's tongue with his saliva? There are multiple possibilities. I read multiple theories. I'll give you two. Uh, number one, it was not uncommon in Judaism of the day to associate curative powers with the person's saliva. 
They often thought that a person's saliva could cure certain things. And so it was maybe Jesus is playing into that. Number two, another possibility, perhaps Jesus wanted to turn the tables on what spit was sometimes used for. You think about spit, what is it sometimes used for? It's often used to insult somebody. The chief priests spit on Jesus. The Roman soldiers spit on Jesus. But what his creation used as an insult against him, Jesus used for healing for this man. Now, we might be tempted to be grossed out by this act, and maybe some of us more than others are more grossed out by this act, but we dare not be grossed out by anything that the Son of God does. His spit is far more pure than the clearest spring. Look at verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Jesus looks up to heaven. Now, why did he do that? Why did he look up to heaven? Because as Jesus said in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As he looked up to his Father in heaven, Mark writes, what did he, what did he do before he said this? He sighed. This is the only time this word is used in the Gospels. Here's another detail that Mark gives us. I love that Mark gives us these little nuggets. Paul uses the term three times in his epistles where Paul uses it to mean groan. So what does it mean that Jesus sighed? What does it mean that he groaned? Cranfield, who's a commentator, writes this. The sigh indicates the strong emotion of Jesus as he wages war against the power of Satan and has to seek divine aid in urgent prayer. I think that's a good explanation. Jesus said, after sighing, after groaning, Jesus said to the man, now consider that, Jesus said to the deaf man, Jesus is speaking to a deaf man. Jesus said to him, Ephatha, which is debatable whether that is Aramaic or Hebrew, but I, I think it's probably Aramaic. And it means be open. Now, I want to point out that ephatha in the Greek here, uh, the, Greek, the, the, Greek, the translation of the Greek word, is in the imperative mood. Jesus commands this man's mouth and his ears to be opened. He is not suggesting this. He is commanding this. I wonder, did the man hear this word when Jesus said ephatha? Did the man hear it? We don't know. I like to think that he did. If he did, consider that the very first thing he may have ever heard in his life was the sound of Jesus' voice. I hope that after I die, the very first thing I hear is the sound of my Savior's voice. Look at verse 35. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. His ears were opened, meaning what? He could hear. His tongue was released. Do you know how the, the Greek literally reads there? The chain of his tongue was broken. I wish they, I don't know, just translate it that way. It's so much better. The chain of his tongue was broken. Wow. And he spoke plainly, 
literally rightly or correctly, the Greek word there is orthos, where we get the word orthodontics or orthopedics. It's like straight, rightly, correctly. Notice Mark does not write he could hear and he could speak. Notice he doesn't say that. He doesn't say the man could hear, the man could speak, but rather his ears were opened, meaning someone opened them. His tongue was released, meaning someone released it. Look at verse 36. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So Jesus charges them. That word charge literally is command or give orders to. He commanded them. He gave them orders. He says, tell no one. Now this is now the second time in the Mark's gospel where Jesus gives orders to not tell anyone what just happened. The first was back in Mark 145 with the leper who disobeyed that command as well, where he went and told everybody. Why does Jesus not want them to tell anyone? Why would did multiple times Jesus say, don't tell anyone what just happened? Two motivations. Number one, the more popular Jesus gets, the harder it will be to keep the Romans off the radar. In other words, if he begins to get too popular, the Romans had a history of saying when someone starts getting a lot of power, what do they do? Squash it. But see, Jesus has a very specific time frame of when he's ready to die. He's not ready to die yet. So he is trying to keep his popularity low. Number two, Jesus doesn't want the crowds to have a misunderstanding of his mission. He does not want them to think he is a political liberator. He does not want them to think that he is a miracle vending machine where they, they come and just come to him and it's like, hey, line up, li get in a straight line here, touch him, okay, move along. They do not, Jesus said, that's not my mission. Mark says, though, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Look at verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now they are astonished. That word astonished means amazed, astounded, overwhelmed, and not just a little. Mark says beyond measure, they are astounded. And the crowd says one, one of my favorite statements about Jesus. He has done all things well. This reminds us of the creation account, doesn't it? After God had made the whole entire world, God saw everything that he had made. And what was it? It was very good. Everything God did at creation, he did well. You see, it wasn't as though Jesus specialized in leprosy. You know, you go to the hospital, you have a doctor, this doctor specializes in cancer, this doctor specializes in, you know, bones. And it wasn't as though Jesus specialized in leprosy. It wasn't as though he specialized in demon possession. It wasn't as though he specialized in blindness. He specialized in everything. There was no infirmity that he could not heal. Everything he did, he did well. Let's look at the second story. Chapter 8, 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, Bethsaida is a town on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. 
It's where Jesus told the disciples to row. If you remember when he, they got on the, the boat, he said, go row across the lake. And they were supposed to go to Bethsaida, but they couldn't make it there because the wind had pushed them somewhere else, pushed them to Gennesaret. Now, just like in our previous story, an unidentified crowd, we don't know who it is, but some crowd brings a man to Jesus. This man also has an infirmity. He's blind. And this crowd does the exact same thing. They beg Jesus to touch him. Now again, notice the faith of the crowd. They bring him to Jesus because they believe that healing of this man lies in the touch of Jesus. They believe that if Jesus will simply touch this man, his blindness will be healed. Look at verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? <laughs> Just like the deaf man, Jesus does the same thing. He takes the man away from the crowds. He takes the blind man by the hand and leads him out of the village. He wants to be alone with this man. And then Jesus does something most unusual. But after reading what we just read, shouldn't come as a surprise. Jesus spits on his eyes. Now in John 9, Jesus will also heal another blind man. But this, in that example, he'll spit on the ground. And he makes mud on the ground. Then he takes the mud and then he anoints the man's eyes with his mud. But here in Mark 8, it reads as though Jesus directly spits on his eyes. I don't know if he did it in his hand first and then touched him or if he just like spit in his eyes. I, I don't know. But Mark seems to, 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 to word it as such that he uh, just spit right on his eyes. Jesus also lays his hands on the man. And then he asks him a question. Very, very interesting. Do you see anything? This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus asked a healed person a question. Only time. Now, why does Jesus ask this? Why does he ask, do you see anything? I'll talk about that in the application. Look at verse 24. And he looked up and said, I see people. Uh, they kind of look like trees walking. In response to Jesus' question, the man said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, that leads us to one of two things. Perhaps he was blind later in life. He knew what a tree looked like. Or maybe just growing up, he had, you know, even though he's blind, he maybe had felt a tree and he just imagined that's what a tree looked like when he saw these people walking around. I don't know. Just like Nicodemus, this man sees what? Something. Remember, Nicodemus said, we see that you are from God. Just like Nicodemus, this man sees something, but he doesn't see clearly. His eyes are open to a partial revelation, but he is dependent on Jesus for a full revelation. Now, why did Jesus partially heal him? Jesus gave him sight. He said, I can see. But Jesus gave him blurry sight. He did not give him 20-20 vision. Why did Jesus do this? I'll talk more about this in the application as well. 
But for now, let me say, I think there is something deeper going on here than, more, than simply a physical healing. I think there's a deeper thing that Jesus is wanting to show here that goes much beyond a physical healing. I'll talk about that in the application. Look at verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, in both miracle accounts, there seems to be two stages of healing uh, for, for Jesus. In the case of the deaf man, stage one is Jesus puts his fingers in the man's uh, uh, ears, and he spits on his tongue. Stage two, Jesus looks up to heaven, and he says, Ephatha. In the case of the blind man, stage one, Jesus spits on the man's eyes and lays his hands on him. And stage two, Jesus lays his hands on him a second time. So there's this two-stage process in both of these accounts. And in this account, after Jesus lays his hands on the man, the second time, the man opened his eyes. Now the word used there for opened Here's, what, here's the definition. To stare with eyes wide open. To look intently or open one's eyes wide. This is kind of the difference. Like, you know, your eyes can be like this. But you ever like see something you're like. It's like that. Like he, because before he can see, but everything's kind of blurry. But now he sees clearly and he's like. And his sight is restored. That word restored, it's the same word used to the shriveled man's hand when it was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Clearly. People no longer looked like trees. The most effective LASIK surgery of all time. Look at verse 26. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus sent the man home with an unusual instruction. Do not even enter the village. Jesus does not want this man to broadcast the miracle to everybody in the village, but rather tells him, go home. You see, sometimes like the demoniac, Jesus says, go home and tell them how much I have done for you. And sometimes like these two stories, Jesus says, go home and don't tell them what I have done for you. We'll stop there with the exposition. Application of the text. I have seven takeaways. I had, well, I had many more takeaways, but I, I, have, I have curated seven for you. <laughs> Number one, when you are in great need, the only thing that matters is getting to Jesus. When you are in great need, the only thing that matters is getting to Jesus. Both stories this morning uh, have two things in common. Number one, both have a man with an infirmity, a, a serious infirmity. One is deaf and the other is blind. And number two, both crowds bring their man to Jesus. One man woke up deaf and he went to bed hearing. One man woke up blind and he went to bed seeing. How? How? Because both men were brought 
to Jesus. Now, I want us to consider a hypothetical situation for just a minute. I want us to imagine. Imagine if Jesus came to the Decapolis and the crowd didn't bring the deaf man to Jesus. Didn't. Jesus is there. The one who can give this man the ability to hear, the ability to speak. Jesus is there and they don't bring him to Jesus. Or imagine they tried to and the man said, what's the use? I've tried everything. Imagine if Jesus came to Bethsaida and the crowd didn't bring the blind man to Jesus. Or imagine he didn't want to go. Jesus is in Bethsaida. He's in your town. He has the power to heal you. And they didn't bring him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being blind or deaf in these days? Jesus in the flesh being in your town and not bringing your infirmity to him? How many times in a given week, month, year is that true of us how many times are we facing a trial a weakness a sin a setback an obstacle an infirmity and we don't bring it to jesus maybe we're too busy Maybe we're too distracted. Maybe we subconsciously doubt if it actually will help. Maybe we're determined to fix the problem on our own. You see, when you are deaf, the only thing that matters is getting to Jesus. When you are blind, the only thing that matters is getting to Jesus. Brother and sister, whatever trials you have gone through in 2023 or whatever trials you're going to go through in 2024, the only thing that matters is getting to Jesus. Everything else can wait. That cannot. Two, Jesus was not a verse but rather desire to be up close and personal with his creation. Jesus was not averse, but rather desired to be up close and personal with his creation. You know, one of the glories of the incarnation, God becoming flesh, is that we see that our God is not averse, but our God actually desires, desires to be up close and personal with his creation. I love, love that Mark included these stories. And I love that he included these details. It's one of the reasons why when I was trying to figure out what gospel I want to preach on, when I read Mark, I was like, it's Mark. Because Mark has got these raw details. He tells it like a commoner. And, and I just, I love it. Because it shows us a picture of God's heart. It shows us a picture that God, our God, is not some distant, transcendent God who sits aloof removed from his creation we get a picture of a god who came to this earth and even when he came to this earth he did not stay removed from them he got down in the mud with us literally 
at times. He stretched out his hand and touched lepers to heal them. He touched Peter's mother-in-law's hand to heal her fever. He touched the two blind man's eyes on the side of the road, on the Mount of Transfiguration. When the disciples fell down in fear, Jesus walked over to them and he touched them to assuage their fears. Two additional blind men on the side of the road, Jesus walked up to them and touched them to heal them. He took the little children into his arms. Parents were bringing their kids to him and the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And not only come to me, they came and he took them into his arms and laid his hands on them. The widow who lost her only son, Jesus walked up to the coffin and touched the coffin. When Peter cut off Malchus's ear, Jesus picked it up, touched the man's ear. He let the bleeding woman touch him. He let the sinful woman at the dinner with only men touch him. He let all the sick in the marketplaces touch him when he passed by. And in our story this morning, he puts his fingers in this deaf man's ears. He spit and touches this man's tongue. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the city, and then he spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, and then he lays his hands on him a second time. How close does God desire to be with you? How close does God desire to be with you? As close as flesh upon flesh. That close. Closer than your spouse. Closer than your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. As flesh upon flesh. Three. Jesus groaned in prayer. So should we. Jesus groaned in prayer. So should we. Here is another detail only given by Mark. In verse 34, it says that Jesus looking up to heaven, he sighed. I don't know what that, you know, it's like, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. He literally groaned. It, it, it means Jesus expressed deep emotion in his prayer. Now this word that Mark uses, it's only used one time in the gospels, but it's used five times in the epistles. And if you want to study this word, if you read Romans 8, 23, in 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4, they will give context to how to understand this word. What's interesting is that the word for groan, it can also be translated as grumble, as it is in James 5, 9. When James says, do not grumble, that's the same word as groan. Now what that tells us is that there is a fine line between groaning and grumbling. Groaning, grumbling. There's a fine line that cuts these two. In other words, grumbling in prayer is sin. But groaning in prayer is Christ-like. What does this mean? It means that the antidote to have a grumbling heart in prayer is not to remove all emotion. 
but to find the right expression of that emotion. You ever, you ever had something where you're praying and you just find yourself grumbling to God? And to be fair, if, if that's the best you can do, you should do that rather than, than not go to God. But you ever find yourself grumbling in prayer where you're just kind of like, oh my gosh, like my boss or my mom or gosh, like the president or uh, this church member, my pastor. Oh gosh. You're just like gr- grumbling in prayer. And at the moment you realize, okay, that's sin. Grumbling is sin. The antidote to that is not to then just like remove emotion and just say, Lord, please bless them. That's not the antidote. It is not sin to groan in prayer. How do we know that? We know it can't be sin because Jesus did it. Jesus groaned in prayer. There is a healthy groaning in prayer where we recognize something is not right. Where we feel the effects of the curse. We feel the effects of our flesh. We feel the effects of sin. And we groan in prayer for our sin and other sin, for the curse and how it affects all of us for the effects of our flesh where we groan and we, we long for the day when all things will be made right. And so we groan saying, Lord, I long for the day when you will be done with this. I won't struggle with this anymore. My brother or sister who is sinning against me, one day they will not sin against me anymore. I long for the day that they would be saved. Jesus modeled for us a healthy groaning in prayer. Don't grumble, but also don't forsake groaning. Groan in prayer. Four, our prayer is Jesus' command. Our prayer is Jesus' command. Over and over again, when the crowds brought their sick to Jesus, they were essentially praying. They're praying, saying, essentially, will you help us? Will you have mercy on us? You know, 2,000 years have passed, and so much has changed. You know, if you look at, like, uh, how are things different 2,000 years ago? Like, so much has changed, hasn't it, from 2,000 years? And yet, so much has not changed. We still don't have a cure for blindness. We don't have a cure for deafness. We don't have a cure for paralysis. We don't have a cure for demon possession. When they brought this deaf man to Jesus, their prayer was for Jesus to heal him. They were praying, will you please heal our friend? Their prayer was Jesus's command. Jesus did not only say, Ephathah. He commanded this man's ears and his mouth, Ephathah. Be opened. And immediately the chains fell off and his ears were opened. Now I realize that the way most things work in life is not like this. Most things in life is a process, right? Nothing is that simple. Like you can't even get a rebate without going through a process. I bought a washing machine uh, and I had to get a rebate. And you get a rebate, you, uh, you have to fill out this form, mail it in wait for approval, they cut a check, mail it out in six to eight weeks, 
And then you finally have your rebate. That's how most things work. But when we pray, if God wills it, there is no process. God can command whatever he wants on the spot. You could have 20 years of marriage problems, and if God willed it, he could solve it right there, right then. You could have 20 years of hardened, stubborn heart. Your mom or your dad's hardened, stubborn heart towards God. And God, if he wills it, right there, right then. There's no process needed. Our prayer is God's command. You see, these miracles are given to instill faith in us. Brother and sister, when you pray, when you pray, do you believe that all Jesus has to do is say the word? I don't mean theologically, right? Because I think if you're, if you're in Christ, you of course believe that theologically. I mean, do you believe it in the depths of your heart? Do you believe it like that deep down in the recesses of your heart as strongly as you believe anything in your life that when I pray, all he has to do is say a word? And it's done. Five. The crowd disobeyed Jesus' command to be silent. Let's not disobey Jesus' command to speak. The crowd disobeyed Jesus' command to be silent. Let's not disobey Jesus' command to speak. I was talking uh, to Lauren at lunch this week. We were having lunch and um, she was asking about how the sermon was going. And I was telling her that I was having a really difficult time reading these passages. I was having a difficult time seeing the crowds as being disobedient. You see, Jesus charged them, tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more they proclaimed it. Which means in this context, it was sin for them to proclaim what Jesus had done. You see, one of the things we learn in the Gospels is that doing the right thing in the wrong context is the wrong thing. The demoniac man had asked Jesus, may I be with you? Let me follow you. And Jesus said, no, go home and tell them how much I have done for you. It would have been disobedient if that man had waited till Jesus left and he kind of just like followed at a distance. Following Jesus in that context would have been wrong. Here, Jesus does the opposite. He heals the man. He tells the man in the crowds, he says, do not tell people how much I have done for you. Go home. Don't tell anyone. But they disobey him. Now listen, I don't want to suggest, I want to be really careful. Please hear me. I don't want to suggest that we can learn from these people's disobedience. But I just found it so challenging that these people, they simply can't help themselves. They can't help themselves. They are so eager to tell others what Jesus has done for them. You see, the crowd disobeyed Jesus' command to be silent. Let's not disobey his command to speak. You see, those who have had their life changed by Jesus, those who have truly had their life changed by Jesus, they can't help themselves. They have to tell others.
They have to. Six. Jesus makes no mistakes. He does all things well. Jesus makes no mistakes. He does all things well. Uh, we recently got a Christmas card. Uh, well, we got many cards, but we got, we got one Christmas card in particular. And as I was reading it, it read more like a resume than it did a Christmas card. It was listing all the accomplishments and achievements throughout the year. And uh, I found that ironic because Christmas is about Jesus's resume, not ours. It made me wonder, like, imagine if Jesus had a resume. Imagine like, you know, those, uh, or, or imagine if we filled out one of those uh, reference forms, you know those reference forms you got to fill out for somebody for school or work or whatever. You fill, imagine you're filling it out for Jesus. Strengths, everything. Weaknesses, none. Skills, everything. On a scale of one to 10, how would you? 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Where would you put yourself in five years? On, on the throne? And they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. Just like a creation where God made the entire world and everything was very good, everything Jesus did, he did well. He made no mistakes. Nothing is a mistake in the economy of God, which means, which means this man's deafness was not a mistake. This man's blindness was not a mistake. You see, not only was his healing done well, but so was his creation of their infirmities. Why? How so? Have you ever considered that if their deafness, if their blindness was what brought them to Jesus, then their infirmities were the greatest gift they ever received? Friend, Jesus makes no mistakes. He does all things well. What you resent most about your life, what you dislike most about your life may be the very thing that God has done well in your life if that's what it will take to bring you to him. Seven, last point. Jesus gives us not only the ability to see, but to see everything clearly. Jesus gives us not only the ability to see, but to see everything clearly. I asked the question in the exposition, why does Jesus ask the man, do you see anything? And more importantly, why did Jesus seem to heal him in two stages? It's the only time that this, this kind of thing happens. Why? It's the only time he asks a question. It's the only time that he heals somebody in two stages where he partially heals them and then fully heals them. Why? There are many, many proposed answers to these questions, none of which can be dogmatic. The one that I am most convinced by is the one I'm going to share with you, but you can obviously do more research if you like. I think that there is a deeper meaning in this healing miracle. I think that this healing miracle is actually serving as a type of a real life parable for salvation. 
I think this is serving as a real life parable for salvation. You see, the man came to Jesus as blind. And Jesus heals him. He gives him sight. Jesus plainly asks him, <coughs> do you see anything? And the man says, I see. I see. Now imagine if we put a period after the word see in verse 24. Imagine if verse 24 read, uh, Jesus said, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see. Period. And that's the end of the story. Do you see anything? I see. Jesus healed him. This man can now see. But there is no period there. He says, I see what? I see people, but they look like trees walking around. What does that mean? It means Jesus' work is not finished. Jesus' work is not finished. You see, Jesus came not only to give us sight, but to give us clear sight. Clear sight. The moment that this man's eyes were opened and he could see, he could have run off, run home, and been so completely thrilled that he could see. Guys, I can see. He'd have been bumping into the walls the rest of his life, but I can see. And yet he would have continued mistaking people for trees and trees, maybe trees for people. It is only by staying close to Jesus that he receives the full grace of Jesus in the second touch. In this second touch, the man receives not only sight, but he receives clear sight. Now, what is, how does this apply to us? Hear me when I say this. I cannot emphasize this enough. There are many in the church. This may be true of you. There are many in the church who have had their eyes opened to the reality of God. As the author of Hebrews writes, they have been enlightened. You know what the word enlightened means? To give light to. Their eyes have been enlightened. Their spiritual pupils have been opened and they have received the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God. They have tasted the powers of the age to come. But they don't see clearly. They don't see clearly. It is only by staying close to Jesus that we receive the fullness of his grace. It is only by staying close to Jesus that we not only see, but we see clearly. Many people, many Christians, many professing Christians are thrilled at the fact that they can see. That's enough for them. And it inoculates them against really seeing, truly seeing. Ask God that you would see him clearly. Let's pray.